You guys will not be sorry. Welcome to It Happened Here. Brought to you by Kate Thompson Davy. Hello, IHHs. First off, thanks to Samantha Faree for that awesome intro. Sam has actually done a few of these for me. My favorite being the one using the theme music from Baywatch, which makes me want to go solve crime on a beach run somewhere in a tiny costume with one of those floaty things over one shoulder, taking the show in a whole new direction. Before we begin, I want to start with my usual thanks section. And that's all about singing the praises of the incredible IHH Patreon crowd. My page is at patreon.com forward slash it happened here. And it's been live how long now? Um, just over a month or so. And there are already 21 patrons. The money I raise through this helps me cover things like my account fee with Acast and my audio processing service so that this podcast doesn't sound like it was recorded inside a tin can. It helps me buy some of the books and reference materials I use to put each episode together. So yes, we're a small community right now, but every cent helps and is being used in directly supporting the show. Two new members of the Patreon crowd are Sarah Gurney and Joanne Paul. Thanks to you both for your support. Thank you, thank you. I... Honestly, can't thank you enough for participating and trusting me to continue to make content that you enjoy. And I hope that I live up to your expectations and those of all the previous Patreons. Now, let's get true crimey. The President Hotel in Bantry Bay is a long way from the sweet and simple townhouses we've been lurking in recently. Bantry Bay, for starters, is one of the wealthiest parts of Cape Town, and it shows. It sits in the shadow of Lion's Head, which is a part of the Table Mountain Range that you typically see in postcards of Cape Town City Bowl. Bantry is wedged between the steep slopes of Lion's Head and the frigid Atlantic Ocean. Frigid but beautiful, like... Oh, I don't know. Anna from Frozen. (laughs) This area and Camps Bay, which is just a short drive around the corner from Bantry, are part of what is sometimes called the Cape Riviera, often likened to Cannes in France. It's gorgeous and glamorous Cape Town, where the model and influencer crowd hang and drink overpriced beer. The President Hotel dominates the landscape of Alexander Road, Bantry Bay. It has some 350 rooms and apartments, with tall palm trees positioned around a pool and the exterior painted in startling white just to lean into that med look. On the 7th of June 2009, security guard Mark Benjamin is standing outside room 54, key in hand, with two other men chomping at the bit to get inside. These men are Lester Penteni and Marshal Gobinka. The men had gone to the President Hotel in search of Judge Patrick Matubela, who was leasing one of the luxury apartments and had been unreachable for a few days. June is winter in the Southern Hemisphere, and it was a cool 12 degrees Celsius outside. But one of the first things the men notice when they open the door to the room 54 is how hot it was, like the heat had been turned all the way up. Once inside, 
The second thing they notice is a smell. That telltale stink. And it gets stronger as they make their way into the apartment and stronger still in the bedroom. There on the bed was a man-sized shape, shrouded in bed sheeting. They had found Patrick, confirming their worst fears. The men retreated, taking care not to touch anything, and called the cops. Investigators were soon on the scene, including Captain Etienne van Edder, who invited the men back into the room to confirm the identity of the deceased. Together, they and the cops noted a couple of fan heaters that had been set up inside the room. It had reached a steamy 30 degrees in there. They also noted that Patrick was fully dressed. Um, Well, not just fully dressed. He was actually wearing two full sets of clothing and a pillow had been placed over his head. But despite these rather odd and suspicious details, Captain Van Eder initially ascribed the death as of natural causes, suggesting that the judge had died of a heart attack. According to a piece in the Sunday Tribune, though, Gobinka was not convinced. A. The scene obviously raises a few pointed questions. With the fans and the heat, surely you're thinking this has been carefully set up to speed up decomposition. And B. As a medical doctor, Gobinka didn't think the carefully positioned body and the neat covering of the sheets suggested a man who had flailed around in pain and died of a sudden heart attack. Then there was the blood on Patrick's face. How would that be explained? While some 11 years later, the cause of Patrick's untimely demise remains a matter of debate. One acquittal, one conviction, and one successful appeal later, Patrick's cause of death remains unexplained. This is episode 14 of It Happened Here, Unnatural Suspicions, The Death of Judge Matkubela. Patrick Ntubeko Matkubela was 60 at the time of his death in 2009. He had been born in the village of Kumbu in the Transkai on March 30th, 1949. The nearest big town to Kumbu is Mtata. It's deeply rural Transkai, especially back in the 40s and 50s. For international listeners, the Transkai is a region that had been declared a black homeland by the apartheid government. Patrick had been politically active from a young age and even commanded an Mkontwe Sizwe, or MK for short, unit. Again, for international users, Mkontwe Sizwe means spear of the nation, and this was the armed wing of the African National Congress, or ANC, co-founded by Nelson Mandela in the early 60s. The ANC was a banned organization under apartheid, and today it is our ruling party. According to an obituary from the Times, Patrick joined the Black Consciousness-aligned SA Students Organization while he was still at school, and then he went on to study law at the famed Fortier University. He was actually expelled from Fortier for his political activities. He did his articles with Griffiths Mkwenge, who was a well-known human rights lawyer who was later assassinated by an apartheid police squad in 1981. Patrick, as I have said, was a commander in MK, and he was arrested for actions taken as part of this, specifically for planting bombs targeting strategic assets of the apartheid state, 
such as an army recruitment centre in one instance. For his part in the bombing, in 1982 Patrick was sentenced to 20 years in prison on Robben Island. The Times obit says that during his imprisonment, he was known as the Godfather, which his fellow prisoners nicknamed him because he was older and had, quote, an air of authority and calming influence at a time when they thought they were going to be hanged, end quote. He even shared a cell with Nelson Mandela in Pulsemore. He was released in 1991, when the ANC was unbanned and the dismantling of apartheid finally started. He then took up the role of director of the SA Legal and Defence Fund, which aided political prisoners and activists with their defence costs. After 1994, he worked as a legal advisor to a number of SA politicians and was a practising attorney. He had just been appointed an acting judge of the Western Cape High Court the year before his death. Patrick had two children from a former marriage and two daughters with his wife, Tandi Matkubela. Tandi, too, had a child from a previous marriage. Although Patrick wasn't a literal statesman, he had that air about him and certainly had an incredible struggle pedigree. He was well-connected with friends in important places, a struggle stalwart, an MK vet. He and Tandi were a bit of a power couple. She was a nurse turned businesswoman with involvement in several companies, including a good number of directorships under her belt. And she was also a striking woman, always beautifully put together. But not all was well in the Matubela marriage. In fact, for at least two years, Tandi had been keeping a dossier of sorts meticulously collecting and filing proof of Patrick's various affairs, including invoices from hotels and strip clubs, credit card statements, and even prints of text messages between Patrick and his lovers. And she wasn't shy about sharing them around either. As things got more and more acrimonious between them, she started hauling these things out to show friends and family members, even his colleagues. And just a month before his death, She went to the media with her allegations, specifically the Sowetan, which is a major newspaper here. The Sowetan did look into this, interviewing some of the affair partners and even putting the accusations to the judge, who told the paper that he was too busy to read their rubbish questions. The Sowetan's article on this doesn't state why they squashed the story, but it is rumoured that they came under political pressure to drop the piece. By that stage, in mid-2009, Tundi was living in their home in Sandon, Johannesburg, and Patrick had moved into the suite at the President Hotel in Cape Town. But Tundi was not about to let her go. She flew to Cape Town in early June and landed herself a meeting with the then Justice Minister, Jeff Gedebe, on the 4th of June to show him her dossier in an attempt to stop the confirmation of her husband's appointment as a judge. Now, just a few days later, her husband is found dead. So really, it's not surprising that the docket declaring his death to be the result of natural causes was reopened just a few days later. Even though the state pathologist had recorded in his autopsy that there were no external or internal injuries and the death appeared to be natural, the police were gearing up for another look, with Tundi front and centre. Let's go back to the days before Patrick's death. Tundi is in Cape Town on Wednesday the 3rd and June 4th. 
and Patrick is alive and well, seen by and talking to several different people. On the 4th of June, Tandy has her meeting with Jeff Khadebe, and Jeff immediately calls his mate Patrick to tell him what's going down. According to his later testimony, Jeff says Patrick told him on that call that he would be pursuing a divorce. Clearly, this latest move in Tandy's campaign against him had been the last straw. Patrick also calls his financial advisor and asks him to draw up a proposed divorce settlement. On Friday 5th, Patrick is not in at work. He's missed a standing meeting with his fellow judges and tongues are wagging. His secretary, Joy Eli Hanslow, has tried to ring him repeatedly but has not been able to reach him and had left several voice notes. Then, mid-morning, around 10.30, Joy receives a phone call from a woman with an Afrikaans accent calling herself Amanda. This woman tells Joy that she's a nurse at Grotesker Hospital and Patrick has been admitted, but she wouldn't be drawn into providing further details. Joy was clearly unsettled by this and started ringing around. She reached the legal firm where Patrick had been a partner and was given his wife's number. So she calls Tundi and tells her about the phone call that she received. Tundi is at first silent, like she was shocked by the news. And then she says she doesn't know anything about Patrick being admitted to hospital and will call them. Tundi rings Joy back a few hours later, saying she would send a friend to the hospital to get to the bottom of things. And then a few further hours later, she rings again. Her friend, she tells Joy, says Patrick isn't a patient at Grotesker. But some people have been in touch with Patrick. Several people got texts from him that day. Tundi herself is on the receiving end of texts from Patrick's phone. One sent on June 5th reads, Please forgive me for all the things I've done to you. I can't even face you. Yes, you have a point. I need help. Thanks for being there for me. I love you. And another on June 6th, which is now the Saturday, reads, Please call me. I don't know what to do now. We both promised to visit Gumbu. I'm in Joburg with children. They started exams. They need us. Please call. We love you. Jeff Khadebe also gets texts from his friend. The texts from Patrick imply that he has realized the error of his ways and is trying to fix his marriage rather than end it. Tandy also texts Jeff. The first message is to ask him uh, if he spoke to Patrick on her behalf, and the second is to say that she and Patrick would be heading to Gumbu together. She later texts again, writing, Whatever you said to him is making him a better person. I hope he is genuine, but time will tell. If we take things at face value at this point, we know that Patrick hasn't shown up for work, and it seems that he's having some sort of personal struggle. But that alone isn't proof of anything. After all, Tundi is supposed to be a thousand kilometers away, and Patrick has been known to go AWOL before. In fact, he'd previously been on the receiving end of some very stern words from the senior partner at the previously mentioned law firm about going AWOL. Again on face value, we see him trying to reconcile with his wife, and both of them are sharing with friends that there might be a chance that they've decided to take a trip together back to his place of birth. The problem, though, 
is that Patrick was likely already dead in his room when all of this was going on, lying there under the sheets in that 30-degree room. Even without a clear cause of death, after two autopsies and an inconclusive toxicology report, the pathologist is certain about one thing. Patrick likely died on June 5th, two days before he was found, and with that, the case is changed to a murder investigation. There is very little public information about what happens in the next nine to ten months. We know that a number of very prominent and respected police investigators are assigned the case. And we know that they all turn fairly quickly to the idea of a hired hit, possibly, probably orchestrated by Tundi. At the same time, Patrick's family have their own suspicions, and they're also dealing with the nightmare of having to divide his considerable estate without a will. Among other things, it is revealed that Patrick took out life insurance to the tune of 20 million rand two weeks before his death. This was directed to be paid to the estate, but then he died without a will, and the master of the high court appointed Tundi as the executor of the estate. His family appealed this, but it was still an ongoing fight. Then, on March 25, 2010, police finally feel they have enough to bring her in, and they arrest Tundi in Santon in the early morning and fly her back to Cape Town. Interestingly, two days after this, she claims to have found Patrick's will after all. In this document, it appears he has disinherited the children from his previous marriage and included Tundi's daughter from her previous marriage. But instead of helping her case, the will is used by police to add charges to her sheet, specifically fraud and forgery. They allege that she's made the whole thing up and forged his signature on the documents. With the new will, after debts have been covered, Tundi reportedly stands to get a cool seven million as a result of Patrick's death. Even if the new will is excluded, because they were married in community of property, she could have been in for an inheritance of six million rand. But with the arrest and ongoing legal proceedings, the asset forfeiture unit froze the estate. According to reporting on the case by Fatima Schroeder of the Argus, the unit built their case on a common law principle that translates to a bloody hand does not inherit. This was to prevent Tandy from laying claim to any of the money if she was implicated in Patrick's death. As a result of her arrest, Tandy was removed as executor. Now I mentioned above that the police are working on this case assuming that Tandy hired someone to help her kill her husband. So let's get into that for a second. Along with her arrest, police take into custody a man. His name is Vela Mabena, and he worked with Tundi in a networking marketing company called Forever Living Products, where she was a divisional head. I've read in a few newspaper articles that Vela may have been a medical doctor, but I've not been able to verify this. More certainly, he had worked as a chaplain of the South African Defence Force. Vela was 45 years old and lived in Newlands, Cape Town with his wife on the property of her employer. Vela essentially comes onto the police's radar through phone records, 
in that there were several short calls between the two on that Friday, the day Patrick died, and into the weekend and, and the new week. With this information, the state's case is starting to emerge, alleging that Vela and or Tundi suffocated Patrick with a piece of plastic wrap and conspired to hide his death and complicate the investigation of it by messing with the rate of decomposition. And I should mention that the plastic wrap was not found on or near Patrick's body. Rather, this was found in the bin of the apartment bedroom. The cop's version seems to be that they used this to suffocate him before dressing him in additional clothing and turning up the heat and leaving him there to be found by his unfortunate friends that Sunday night. I think that this is where the detail about Vela's alleged medical background and the fact that Tundi had trained as a nurse comes in. It seems to be about backing up the idea that they had the necessary knowledge. But I'm just going to insert my unasked for take here and say that I think this level of forensic fuckery is pretty common knowledge and simple. It wouldn't have taken a medical mind to have this idea and execute it. There is a lot of stop and start with the legal proceedings. I discussed this very briefly last week and I'm going to say it again. I think that justice is generally a very slow process in South Africa. But I must add here that Tandi does an absolutely remarkable job of slowing this down even further. There are, by my count, at least three changes of lawyers on her part and one abscondment that sees her re-arrested for violating the terms of parole. As it stands, the case only really gets underway properly in November 2011. That's well over a year since her arrest. And the presiding judge on the case is Judge John Murphy. Remember, we don't have a jury system here. Judge Murphy was seconded from the Pretoria High Court to Cape Town in order to spare Patrick's colleagues from trying the case and to avoid any potential bias too. It's a marathon court case that runs for two years before a verdict is handed down and the various points of the case, the crime scene and the subsequent evidence, are presented in seemingly any such order. So I'm going to give you some highlights and critical points rather than the entire blasted case, because the jumping around just about did my head in, and I'm kinder to you guys than I am to myself. So, through testimony, in court, we learn that Patrick was in financial dire straits, despite his relatively chunky salary and many properties. He was bonded to the hilt. He was also, as we know, a prolific cheat with innumerable trysts. But that is not an excuse for his awful death. We also learn that despite his age and a solid decade in prison back in the day, he was in excellent health, according to a doctor who gave him physical weeks before his death. Investigators testified that there was no sign of forced entry or theft in the apartment and that Patrick was dressed in a work suit with a full tracksuit on top of that, as well as an additional piece of clothing sort of draped over his shoulders. I'm suddenly drawing a blank on what a tracksuit might be called outside South Africa. Um, maybe sweats? I'm sure you know what I mean anyway. There was a sheet covering him and a pillow over his face, over his face as I've mentioned, which had blood on it. Despite this, no solid explanation is given by the state pathologist who would still not be drawn on a final, clear cause of death 
or whether that blood was a result of a struggle or simply a byproduct of decomposition. This leaves the two sides to volley between heart attack and suffocation. Investigators also tell us that there were nine fingerprints found on the plastic wrap, of which three were Tundi's fingerprints. Also present was Patrick's DNA. A handwriting expert testifies that the signature on the will does not match the previous examples of Patrick's signature. And then the cell phone data that I mentioned before this is a whole course of this morbid meal, arguably the main course. As the court will hear in excruciating detail, all of the SMSs sent to give the appearance of life in the end add up to a mountain of technical data suggesting that Tundi had both phones on her the whole time and was merrily sending SMSs between the phones while they pinged cell towers in the same vicinity. Naturally, that's my wording of what was confirmed. The actual experts talk about calls and SMSs triggering the same towers in Cape Town, Johannesburg and Netgumbu. So I'm connecting the dots here. We also hear confirmation that on the day that Tundi heard that Patrick was not at work and may be in hospital, in all of the many, many calls she made that day, she never rang Patrick directly. And lastly, we learn through court proceedings that Tundi, a devout Jehovah's Witness, did not believe in divorce at all and had said to several people in her life that she believed she took a vow to stay together till death. After all the delays, including a psychiatric observation period, which does not go well for Tundi, the judge finally, in November 2011, finds her guilty of murder, fraud and forgery. At the same time, Vela is acquitted of all charges. On this, the judge says that the, the state failed to make their case, and his finding is one of not proven rather than factual innocence. In his judgment, which takes literal days to be presented to court in entirety, Judge Murphy paints a picture of a woman driven to murder out of jealousy and desperation. He literally uses the word irrational to describe her, despite the findings from Falkenberg psychiatrists that she was perfectly capable of understanding proceedings and had been essentially feigning her moments of apparent delusion during the trial. The sentencing after the verdict is also subject to numerous delays, and ultimately it's only on April 2015, almost six years after Patrick's murder, that Tandy is sentenced to 15 years for murder and three for the charges of forgery and fraud, with those to run concurrently, making for 18 years in total. It was a verdict welcomed by Patrick's family, but that was not to be the end of the saga, because Tandy takes her case to the appeal court, and a new and pivotal pathologist testifies. In 2017, her conviction is overturned, with the Supreme Court of Appeal finding that the original judge erred in concluding that the death was unnatural, and by implication they said, Tandy should not have been found guilty. The court finds, and I quote, In light of the conclusion that the deceased probably died of natural causes, even if the mendacity and guilty consciousness of the appellant were taken into account, an unlawful killing was not the only reasonable inference that could be drawn. End quote. And this makes this such a fascinating legal matter to my non-legal mind. In essence, they're saying that the trial judge based his verdict on her guilty seeming actions after Patrick's death, 
rather than proof of her deliberate and direct involvement in the circumstances of said death. And incidentally, with the guilty verdict removed, the claims of the asset forfeiture unit are also voided. Even though she was found guilty of fraud and forgery relating to Patrick's will, and she didn't fight those, their claim was based on the principle of bloody hands, her involvement in his death, rather than anything else. With that off the table, so is their case. The actual forged will doesn't apply anymore. It's like it never existed. But the fact remains that they were married in community of property. That means that she could contest the division of assets to fight for her share as a spouse. I haven't been able to find anything to say that that fight is actually happening, but it is certainly within her rights to do so. So just as cheating doesn't warrant murder, being a deceptive widow doesn't amount to guilt. Despite what I would call a mountain of circumstantial evidence and her colder-than-the-Atlantic actions after his death, Tandi Makubela is a free woman and in the eyes of the law, innocent of the charge of murdering her husband. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, please let me know what you think about this case. I'm on Facebook and Instagram under the name It Happened Here Podcast or use hashtag IHHpod to tag your posts. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production. Mm-hmm.